0: This morning, I want to take a look at a bit of a book in the Old Testament from the book of Ezekiel, and we're going to look at a passage which talks about a vision that Ezekiel has called the Valley of Dry Bones. But before I dive in, um, I want to start this morning by making a confession to you all. And don't worry, this is my confession to you, not the other way around. And uh, I know that um, many of you will see me as the cool, young, hip, young adults pastor who loves Formula One. Um, But I I can hear some people booing. Um, But I want to confess to you this morning that underneath that facade of suave is a massive nerd, and uh, particularly for anything sci-fi or fantasy. And uh, if it's Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, any of that stuff, I am fully in. And for me, it's not just enough to read the books or watch the films that like, I have to watch all the spin-off shows I have to know every detail and in my most nerdy moments I either, I'm that guy who watches the YouTube videos which uh, unpicks every scene and every moment in order to like tell you the hidden meaning behind everything and what the show is foreshadowing for the next episode and I can tell none of you are with me on that and uh, but this is where we're uh, we're, we're going and uh, when it comes to that stuff, and whether you're uh, familiar with the uh, sci-fi or not, or whether you like it or not, you'll be familiar with the basic plot line that they all have in common. Uh, the main character has some kind of special calling on their life, whether uh, they've got a quest to go on or they have some kind of special powers which they've got to kind of learn how to use. Uh, they, uh, they normally have to uh, complete some sort of mission or quest, which just happens to be the biggest thing that's ever happened in the galaxy before. And uh, along the way on this journey, they have to overcome certain obstacles, or they have to uh, run away from the people trying to hunt them down, or they have to defeat a villain in the process. And uh, there comes a moment in all of these films where there's a moment of jeopardy, where it looks like our main character's luck is about to run out. It looks like that they're not, they're not gonna be able to complete their quest, they're gonna be defeated. And uh, one of the best examples of this is the Avengers film, if people have seen those, and uh, they're great films, and um, particularly Avengers Infinity War. And if you haven't seen this film, don't worry, because I'm gonna ruin it for you now. And uh, basically the plot line of this is there's a band of superheroes called the Avengers, hence the name, And the story is that they're trying to defeat this warlord, alien warlord called Thanos. And Thanos is trying to wipe out half of the population of the galaxy, because he comes from a planet called Titan, which was destroyed by overpopulation. So he's trying to get these six infinity stones, which have these magic powers, collect them all, and wipe out half the galaxy. It's a kind of doing evil for the greater good kind of narrative. And there comes a point in Infinity War where Thanos manages to get all six Infinity Stones. He clicks his fingers and half the galaxy turns into dust and fades away, along with some of our f- favorite superheroes. And then Ma- Marvel, very cruelly, make us wait an entire year for the next installment. And when Avengers Endgame comes out, there's a point in the film at the beginning where we see what the effect of this defeat has had on some of our remaining heroes. Iron Man is lost uh, in space and stuck there. Um, Captain America has lost hope. Thor uh, is getting through a crisis by comfort eating, which I can relate to. And and, um, Hawkeye becomes this deadly mercenary, taking out his anger of losing his family on, on the rest of the world. And it looks like there's no coming back for these heroes at all. It feels like they're too far defeated to ever come back from this but through a long, complicated uh, way of involving time travel, eventually they do, and I won't go into that now. But what has this got to do with the book of Ezekiel, I hear you ask? (laughs) Very little is the answer. (laughs) Um, But we're going to pick up the story in Ezekiel at this moment of jeopardy, this moment where it looks like the people of Israel are defeated. And at this point in time, the Israelites in the book of Ezekiel have been conquered by the Babylonians, Many have been forcibly taken away from their homes. They're forced to work and live amongst the Babylonians. Um, The city of Jerusalem, where they come from, that is their holy city, and it's been under lengthy siege, and eventually it's defeated. And now the Israelites find themselves cut off from the temple so they can't worship their God. They find themselves in a foreign land, and um, all of this leads them to despair. It leads them to feel abandoned, like there's no hope, that they can't see a way out of their situation, and for good reason, because Babylon at this time is the is the political powerhouse of the ancient world. There's no defeat in Babylon; Babylon. they're too big. But God decides to speak through the prophet Ezekiel in this moment, and in the midst of their despair, He promises to restore the Israelites. He sends the people of Israel a message of hope that one day there will be a new king. That one day. There will be a leader of the, pe- the people need but have never had so far and that God would, would remove the people's hard hearts and instead replace it for soft hearts so that they can love and obey their God. God decides to speak through Ezekiel in the midst of their despair and promises to restore them and he follows up this promise by giving Ezekiel a vision And that's where we're gonna enter into the story now. And it says this in Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy, to the, uh, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. And you will know that I, the Lord, has spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Now, a number of us in this room will be able to resonate with some of the feelings that the Israelites are feeling here. Uh, We may feel as dry as a bone on the inside. We may feel a little bleached by the sun and uh, that anything that resembles the fullness of life right now feels a little way off. We may feel hopeless. We may even feel cut off from God. Like right now he feels silent and his voice isn't anywhere to be heard. And many of us will know the dryness and the feeling of hopelessness that we feel on behalf of our world at the moment. You only need to open your BBC app this morning and you will see uh, new stories of war, corruption, and hardship. And for me, over the last few months, I've found um, life difficult for a whole number of reasons. This passage is one I keep coming back to, one I keep um, feeling like the Lord is highlighting for me personally. Because even though it uses the image of death, this passage is one of hope. It is a promise from the Lord that he can bring restoration and healing to any situation. And throughout this difficult chapter for us as a church, this is a promise that I've been holding on to, that even in the midst of what's messy, what's complicated, and what's hard, he is still Lord, he is our hope, and he is the God who brings love. So I would want to pull out just a couple of things that I feel like the Lord has been teaching me, or at least reteaching me, over these last couple of months about this, through this passage. And uh, I'm gonna frame this as lessons from the Valley of Dry Bones. Lesson number one is this. God's vision is different to our vision. As we've read in Ezekiel's vision, God leads him into this valley of these very dry bones. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, you're driving down an A road, and as you're driving along, you just hear the Lord say, pull on over and go have a, look, a little look at that roadkill that's on the side. And you get, you get out of the car, you go look at it, you realize there's a fox on the floor. But this is no longer just a fox, this is a fox pancake. It is fully flattened. And without being too graphic, what is meant to be on the inside is now on the outside. And as you look at this fox, you just hear the Lord say, can this fox live? Now, I don't know about you, but if it was me in that moment, I would say, Obviously not, Lord. This fox isn't just dead. This fox is very, very dead. It's done. But as Ezekiel looks at these bones, he notices that they're very dry, which means these people aren't just dead. They've been dead for a long time. And the Lord asks him, can they live? Now, when I read this, I I thought, how how on earth could the Lord ask this of him? Look, Look at them. They are gone. There's no coming back from this. There is nothing we can do to bring these people back. And for many of us here, there will be things going on in our lives which the outcome already feels like it's been written, like our fate is sealed, that what is going on in the future is already certain. And whether it's illness or addiction, relationship issues, our finances that never feel comfortable, there are many things that, um, there may even be things that aren't coming to mind right now because we're so resigned to the idea that they're certain and done with that the possibility of them being restored just doesn't even feel imaginable. We look at this valley of dry bones in our lives and think this is it now. We learn to live with the deadness. How can these bones live? God's vision is different to ours. Where we see hopelessness, he sees seeds of potential. Where we see an impossible situation, God sees the possibility. Where we see dry bones, God sees life. And it's so easy for us to get bogged down in our present circumstances that we can forget that the God we love and serve is the God who could do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. We forget that he isn't the same as us, that uh, he doesn't have the same limits as us. Whether we mean to or not, we end up boxing him in, thinking that he can only do certain things and works in certain ways. He couldn't do that for someone like me. He wouldn't do that for someone like me. And we can forget those verses from Isaiah that say, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declare the Lord. And where the people of Israel couldn't see a way out of their exile, where they haven't had given up hope, where they feel as dead and as dry as a bunch of all dry bones, God saw the opportunity for hope. He saw the opportunity for healing, for restoration and for new life. God uses this image of death precisely because death feels so final. It feels like such a certain outcome. It feels so much like the final chapter that it's so out of our control that the only way death can be recovered from is with his intervention. And where we cannot see a way forward, he can, because he is the God that even death itself cannot stop. And we see this in his son Jesus who is sent to the cross, die for our sin, defeats death and rises again. The reason his vision is different to ours is because he is different. He is the God who has the power to change what's going on in our lives, I am not. He is the God of healing, I am not. He is the God who can bring peace into our world, I am not. He is the God who can breathe into dead things and once again make them live, I am not. The reason he can see hope and possibilities and life where I cannot is because I am not him. And what I'm learning is to is recently to stop relying on my own sight and what I can see and instead begin to rely on his again. And I don't know whether you've done one of those trust exercises where um, often these happen in workplaces where someone gets blindfolded while the other person is guided. Um, often there's obstacles to get around, and often it's quite funny, because it's basically just someone walking into objects. And, um, but I, I recognize that in life, I am the person being blindfolded, and I'm trying to listen to his voice. And what happens is, to do this well, I have to listen to that voice intently. I can try and guess where to go, but if I'm, I'll only get so far if I haven't listened to his instructions. And even with my best guesses, I might make it so far, I might make it round a corner or two, but eventually I'm gonna start hitting into things. But when we listen to the Lord, when we ask him what he sees and ask him to show us a way forward, he shows us that he can do immeasurably more than we can ask and imagine. Where I can only see death, he can see life. His vision is different to my vision. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, his breath brings me life. In Ezekiel's vision, it's only when those bodies have the breath enter them, that they fully come alive, before they're just these inanimate objects made up of bones and tendons and flesh and skin, but uh, the language alludes here that something is missing until this breath enters them, and this is a significant image, it's uh, given on purpose, It's, it's calling us to think back to the time where God creates the earth, and he creates Adam from the dust, the first human, and he breathes life into him, and then Adam comes to life. And in Hebrew, which is the language of the Old Testament, and uh, the the word here is ruach, which I've probably butchered in how to say it, but if you're a Hebrew expert, don't come and find me. I can't do it. Um, (laughs) And this word refers to God's breath, to his wind, to his spirit. And like the wind, it's a force you cannot see, but you can't deny it when it's there. And while it's used in many ways throughout scripture, one of the primary things it's used to describe is this life-giving force which brings things from death to life. And isn't it true that when our own spirit feels quiet, when we feel down, when life often feels like it's not being lived in all its fullness, that we need something to come and bring life back to us. Our bodies may be moving, we may be continuing to get up, go to work, take the kids to school. We may have a smile on our face still and try to keep moving forward. But when that wind, that spirit, that breath is missing within us, then there is something deep within us that knows that something's not right. And God gives this image to Ezekiel of him breathing life into these bones so that he can speak directly to the pain, to the despair and the hopelessness Um, that the Israelites were feeling in that moment. It's a promise that his life-giving breath will come and bring change because he's not just the God who sees the possibility to bring things to life. He's the God with the power to do it. And where there are loads of us in this room right now who feel empty of that breath within us, this is a promise to us too that he is the God that wants to come and breathe new life into us. Whether we need that physically for our bodies that feel like they're failing us or whether we need it for our very inner souls that, um, so that we can once again flourish and thrive. He is our hope when life feels empty because he is the God of new life. And we can trust that he wants to do this for us because he, he cares for us. To the Israelites, he says, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them." And I remember when I was younger, I was out uh, playing in the street with a bunch of friends of mine, and this guy came out of this house, there was a bit of a misunderstanding, and started to tell us off over something. It was all innocent, I was a good boy. And uh, my sister saw this from her uh, bedroom window, and she comes rushing out, she's a little older than me, her name's Emma, she's seven years older. She came rushing out and stood between me and this guy, and defended me and said what had really happened. Why did she do this? Because I am one of her people. We're family and she cares for me. And to us now, we're God's children. In 1 John 3, it says, what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God for that is what we are. Have you ever seen a parent rush to defend their child? It's a fierce and relentless form of love. And this is how God speaks of his people, how he speaks of you and I. And over the last few moments, in the moments where I've struggled to have hope, where I've wondered, God, where are you in all of this, where my own spirit has been low, where I have, um, I have been learning to once again rely on the promise that he wants to fill me with his breath, to bring life where I feel like a dead man walking. When the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time, at the event we call Pentecost, it's, it says in the book of Acts, that a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. But with Elijah, it was a small and gentle whisper in the Old Testament. Images that once again point us back to that life-giving breath that we see in Ezekiel's vision. And I need that breath within me. And sometimes it's the rushing wind, and other times it's the gentle whisper. And what I'm finding is I need to pursue this breath daily. Ask him to come and fill me, to come and breathe his life into me. And if I'm honest, it feels like it's had varying results. There are some days, and I often do this when I'm in the car on the way to work or uh, try and have a quiet moment at home before I begin my day. And it feels like there are days where I feel the real tangible presence of God, like I'm being filled from the inside out, where it feels like something is shifting within me, like there's There's something filling me up. And there are other days where I feel absolutely nothing. And it feels like, what was the point? It feels like a waste of time. But over time, what I begin to discover is that um, that I'm slowly starting to warm up again. That it feels like my heart is once again becoming a little softer, and there's new life stirring again. Like when you blow on embers and the flames slowly return. I'm relearning that his breath is the thing that brings me life. God's vision is different to our vision. Number two, his breath brings me life. And our final lesson, number three, he gets all the glory. In the chapters before Ezekiel's vision, uh, God not only communicates what he's going to do, but he also explains why he's going to do it. And the answer isn't initially what we would expect. It's not, the main reason he promises to redeem Israel is not because he loves them and wants to see them flourish and thrive, although it's true that he does. The primary reason God gives for redeeming Israel is this. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. In other words, God doesn't want to give any reason for the people of Israel to assume or think it was because of anything they had done that caused them to be saved from their captivity. Remember, the reason God uses the image of death is precisely because the the only way these dry bones can live is through his intervention. The people of Israel wouldn't be able to say, we were the biblical avengers in this narrative, and we brought ourselves out of this, we saved ourselves. Instead, they would have to cry out to the Lord and say it was their God who saved them because he was the only one with the power to do it. He gives the image of a situation you are only able to get out of through relying on him to show us that he is the only one worth relying on. It is not through our own strength that our dry bones come to life. No amount of power or wealth or popularity or intelligence that we can gain in this life will bring these dry bones back. The only thing that can bring them back is the Lord our God. And he is the God whose promise we can trust because he's already got experience in it. This isn't like uh, trusting someone to fly a plane who's never been in the cockpit before. This is the God who cared so deeply for us. He sends his one and only son to die on a cross for us. And he's the God who had the power to breathe life back into that very son defeating death and sin in the process. And he gets the glory because he's the only one who can do it. And recently I realized that I had become resistant to this idea, that this idea made me uncomfortable and I had to ask myself why. And for me, it was because I didn't like the idea of there being anything uh, about me or a situation in my life that I couldn't change for myself, that I couldn't do on my own. And I grew up watching a lot of Disney films as a kid. You you might have also uh, been subject to this. And uh, I watched stuff like The Lion King and Hercules and Mulan, and uh, I still love watching these films. And um, along the way, somewhere I started to believe this classic line that you see in a lot of kids' films, that if I looked far enough inside myself, if I found my inner strength, then I could do anything. If I was strong enough, brave enough, If I worked hard enough, or even just believed enough, it would just happen. But when we're talking about our souls, when we're talking about dead bones, there is only one who can do it, and it's the Lord our God, our Father in heaven. He has nothing to do with me and everything to do with him. And I had to start asking myself, am I willing to lay down this idea that I need to be the hero in my own story? Am I willing to lay down the thing inside me that so desperately wants to be impressive? Am I willing to be vulnerable enough just to even admit I need help and instead choose to rely on him and allow him to take the glory of it all? And when we allow him this unfiltered access into our lives, when we allow him to take the credit, he uses it to draw people to himself. He goes on to say this in uh, chapter 36. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. Or to put it another way, when the people see how the Lord has redeemed us, when they have seen us in one moment to be in a valley of dry bones, in a situation where it looks like there is no hope and no coming back from, when they see that those dry bones now live he will be proved to be holy. He will draw people to himself because it is when he's shown to be holy through you, through the work that he does in you, that he is shown to be holy in their eyes too. Isn't that what we long for? What I'm learning is in order for me to see that in my own life, I have to stand aside. I have to allow my, let down my ego and allow the Lord to take his rightful place because he alone deserves all the glory because he is the only one who can make that which is dead come to life. God's vision is different to my vision. His breath brings me life. And he gets all the glory. And I wanna end just by praying for us all. And, uh, but to do that, I'm gonna use a prayer that Paul uses in Ephesians. And um, I think it kind of draws all those things that I've been learning uh, together. And this isn't a token prayer at the end of a talk. This is a moment for us as a community to ask him to come and breathe on us and fill us with his life again. But it's also a moment for us as individuals, whatever burdens we're carrying into the room, whatever's going on in our lives, ask him again to come breathe into us. Come and bring life into my bones again once more, Lord. and to know that this love surpasses knowledge, you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.